Uh, please turn to Joshua 10, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 28, starting verse 1. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. That he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lashish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon, and fought against it. The men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them there before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon, in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Now these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. It was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. It came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities that all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. So they, they did so and brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon. When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel 
and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. Joshua then said to them, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So afterwards, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua gave a command, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. We may have ears to hear. And Lord, indeed, we do pray. You grant us the grace to have ears to hear and to understand that which is before us this morning. See, to see you who is holy and the grace that has been so mercifully granted to us in Christ's name. Amen. In context to that narrative, I want to begin with an extended quote. It is too bad Much of the church has lost this vision of God or Christ as the warrior who fights for his people. Too many of us regard this conception as substandard, by which we mean it does not fit our sentimental 20th century, written some time ago, graven image of what God ought to be like. The imagery seems too violent. And we do the same for the Lord Jesus with perhaps not a little help from church school materials. The popular image of Jesus is that he is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. Such a Jesus can hardly steal, S-T-E-E-L, steal, solidify, the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. We need to learn the catechism of Psalm 24. Question, who is the king of glory? Answer, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. We must catch the vision of the faithful and true sitting on the white horse, the one who judges and makes war in righteousness. Revelation 19. No mild God or soft Jesus can give his people hope. It is only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us and sometimes without us that we have hope of triumphing in the muck of life. End of quote. It comes from Ralph Davis. And that really is a punch in the gut to the contemporary church. It's helpful, it's challenging. Because in the book of Joshua, with all of its promises, covenants, memorials, warfare, and victories, we see that it is a book that the Spirit of God uses to steal our soul, to borrow Davis's phrase. In our text... 
we are reminded that there are only two camps in life. Those who have peace with God through Jesus Christ, the one and only mediator between God and man, and the other, those who are at enmity with God. We're shown here in this text deliverance from God's wrath, that is, the Gibeonites, and the destruction of God's wrath upon the coalition of five Amorite kings who dared to stand against God's people. For to stand against God's people is to stand against God. Now, again, by way of reminder, whenever we read the Bible, although it was not written to us, it was and is written for us. Look again at Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Forever, or for whatever, was written in earlier times, was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, the Bible often compares the Christian life to a war. We're commanded to fight the, what kind of fight? Fight the good fight. 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A good soldier. Warriors need to be hardened. Their soul needs to be steeled. Through training, through battle, to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I've seen too many believers become battle-weary over the years. They begin to retreat, they disengage, they pull back from Christian ministry. The purpose of Joshua is to assure us of God's everlasting faithfulness amidst the battle unto the end. Chapter 10 underscores our faith in the faithfulness of Almighty God. There again, it is written for us. Amen? It's written for us. The God of grace who is merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the Lord of glory, full of grace, full of truth, is also a warrior who fights for his people despite our failures. God is on our side. Psalm 124 says, Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then we would have been swallowed alive. Now earlier, remember in Joshua 5, we saw the captain of the heavenly hosts. The commander of the Lord's army appeared to Joshua. That, of course, was a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, otherwise known as a Christophany. And when Joshua sees him, he said, are you for us or for our enemies? The greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, the commander of the Lord's army, answered no. 
the commander of, of the heavenly hosts needs to make clear who's who in the battle from the get-go. So he forces Joshua to have a right perspective, and that is to God belongs all these things. To God belongs this land. And once Joshua realizes that he is under the Lord of hosts, he understands more deeply that the Lord indeed is a warrior. He fights for a people that are his and destroys those who would dare stand against them because to be an enemy of God's people is to be an enemy of God. Now, let me pause for a moment. We're reading some bloody accounts in the Bible. And many self-professed atheists, by the way, God does not believe in atheists, they appeal to God's command here for Israel to slaughter the Canaanites as a prime example of why they cannot believe that God exists. If God was truly good, they reason, how would he ever command such a horrible thing? Typical fool response. As we witness throughout our study of the book of Joshua, that's a false dilemma. Because all the inhabitants of Canaan knew full well that Yahweh was the true and living God. Amen? We've read it time and time again. And that that land, Canaan, he was going to give to his covenant people. They were well aware of this. And although the Canaanites, i.e. the Amorites, were given ample time to repent, how many years? 400 years, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Nevertheless, they continued to reject Yahweh and his promises to save all those who will call upon his name, including them. Instead, they chose to worship and serve false gods that are tied to the worship of earth and its creatures. Anything change? Romans 1, no. People still worship the earth and its creatures. So here as Joshua uh, leads Israel to victory over the Canaanite tribes, wiping out the last man, God, my friends, to this day is warning the nations that his final judgment will soon come upon the whole earth. So whoever is listening, they may be standing in the camp of enmity, that is in the camp of rebellion, idolatry, and unbelief. Today is the day to make peace on his terms. And you shall be saved from the wrath that is to come. That's what we're shown here. So having defeated Jericho, having defeated Ai, after entering the land, Joshua and his leaders, they set up an altar there, staking claim to the land, saying, this is Yahweh's. Remember? Stake claim to the land, and that declaration frightened the Canaanites. Okay, look back again at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. They stake claim. They built this monument of field stones. 
They sacrifice there. They worship there. They stake claim to the land there in response, chapter 9, verse 1, when the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and all of Israel. Oh, what fools they were. Reminiscent again of Psalm 2, the nations rage, the people's plot in vain, while the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his people. Friends, it should never surprise you when pagan leaders like this, to try, they try to throw off the laws and statutes of Almighty God. In our day, okay, whether it's the enactment of homosexual marriage or transgender idiocy, did he say idiocy? Yes, transgender idiocy. When legislators gather together and shake their fists at God, attempting to bring down God's holy standards for his creation, the scriptures tell us that he sits in the heavens and he laughs. Now, there was one group living within the land, the Gibeonites, who did not want to fight. They didn't want to run, they didn't want to fight. They knew very well that this would be a losing battle. So, not wanting to die, <laughs> we left off with this Gentile people who made peace with Israel, albeit by way of deceit. The Gibeonites. Wanting to, to make a covenant of peace, they use deception, and they pretend that they have come from a faraway land. So they purposely picked out tattered clothes, worn out sandals, worn out wineskins. They brought stale food with them, crumbling bread, all for the sake of appearance because somehow they knew what the word of God stated. And that is that Israel was ordered to destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan. However, those who lived far away on the boundaries of Canaan if they didn't battle against Israel and they wanted to make peace, then they could make covenant with them. The Gibeonites, knowing that is the case, pretend that they come from a faraway land. So while their method, deception, was wrong, their motive, wanting peace with the one true God, was right. It was right. They knew God's covenant name, Yahweh. They feared him. They knew of his mighty words and works, and they understood that this land was promised to Israel. And they also understood that they were under a death sentence. So they come, not from that far away, to make peace. Now, Joshua and his men, back in chapter 9 and verse 14, did not seek the counsel of the Lord. Consequence? They were tricked. They were duped. And when the trick was discovered, rather than exercising justice, they bestow grace. Rather than wiping them out, they spare the Gibeonites. Why? Because the oath they made was in the name of Yahweh. 
they were going to stick to the covenant agreement because it was in his name. So they enter covenant. The Gibeonites then are brought into the covenant people of God. The curse that Joshua put on them was prophesied way back in Genesis 9 by Noah. We looked at all those details last Lord's Day. If you missed it, you can go listen online. But that curse ends up becoming a blessing because they would spend the rest of their generation, the rest of their lives and the generations that follow, that of the Gibeonites, would serve in the house of the Lord, chopping wood for the sacrifices, hauling water for the ritual cleansing, and so on. And by doing so, they would benefit from the gospel. Gathering with God's covenant people where they would hear the word of God, where they would see the gospel made visible. The burnt offering says, this is what every sinner deserves. But, oh, look at the substitute. Gospel grace. They would see it year in and year out, realizing that it's better to be a servant in the house of the Lord than to be wiped out by God's wrath. So here they are. That's the setting. Verse 1. Now, it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly. This ringleader, Adonai Zedek, means His name means Lord of Righteousness, which he was not. Adonai Zedek is kind of like Milky Zedek, Melchizedek, which means King of Righteousness. This king has become unglued. His first motivation, notice, is fear. This king of Jerusalem feared greatly. This is the first time in the Bible that we see the, the, the word Jerusalem, although the city's been mentioned before in Genesis under Salem. So here this king of Jerusalem is, is, is livid. He's fearful, notice, uh, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Okay, which means, although the men of Gibeon were excellent warriors, they still surrendered to Israel. So he's gripped by fear. This freaked out the king of Jerusalem. So he, he calls out for help from the surrounding nations. Notice in verse 4, he gathered together the four kings of the what? Amorites. God said to his people in Genesis, you will not receive the land until the iniquities of the Amorites is full. It's full and it's overflowing. Notice he gathers four kings to destroy Gibeon, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish, Eglon, verse 5, because they had allied with Israel. So these five kings of the coalition are our designated Amorite. We see the five kings of the Amorites. His first motivation, fear. Notice his second motivation is that the Gibeonites have made an alliance with Israel. 
Verse 4, let us attack Gibeon, okay? Don't miss this. Let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel, okay? This enrages these Amorites. They view the Gibeonites now as traitors and deserters. Principle of application. If you make covenant with this Joshua, pagan nations will attack you. If you make covenant with the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, a new covenant recipient, the world will hate you. The world will turn on you. Young people, as you grow up serving Christ, you go out into this world, you make friends, you meet new friends, school, work, and so on. And there comes a time where you know that you're going to have to confess that you're a Christian. Don't be surprised if they turn on you. Don't live life for friends. You live life for Christ. Amen? It'll happen, kids. It will happen. I guarantee you the world will turn on you when you make covenant with the greater Joshua. In other words, as a recipient of divine grace, you live as a Christian because the world always hates the individual in covenant with God, always. Because they hate righteousness. Remember what Jesus said, John 15, verse 18, look at it. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you, out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Because of me, they hate you, says Jesus. Notice now, this coalition of Amorites come after the Gibeonites, and we now see a cry for help from the Gibeonites. Verse 6, then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So because of their covenant of peace, they cry out for help. Amen to the Gibeonites. Hold in Israel. To these covenant terms, come and help, please. So, verse 9, Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. An all-night march. So, from a cry for help, we move on to a word of assurance for Joshua. Notice in verse 8. God tells Joshua that he will destroy these kings and he will defend the Gibeonites. So do not fear, not one of them shall stand before you. Why? Because the Lord is a warrior and Yahweh is his name. Teaching us again about God's everlasting faithfulness to us as sinners saved by grace alone. Now, while there are consequences 
for Joshua and Israel not seeking the Lord's counsel and entering into covenant by way of deception, there are also consequences for the sinful actions of the Gibeonites, that is their deceit, and that is that they will always serve Israel. And yet, he comes to their rescue because they, the Gibeonites, have made peace with God through his covenant people, Israel. They're connected now. God comes to their rescue. Applicable point. Don't put yourself on a shelf because of some sin of your past. You know, don't, don't think, well, I don't belong here. Um, I don't really have anything to contribute because of my past sins if these other people only knew. Or because of the mess I've made since coming to Christ. Don't put yourself on the shelf, Christian. Don't put other Christians on the shelf either. Now, you may note that you deserve death and destruction, just like your pastor. Amen? That's what I deserve. But, but don't be paralyzed and don't go at it alone. The Gibeonites, in a covenant of peace with God through the Israelites, they call out boldly because of the peace that was made. Plead your new covenant relationship. I'm under the blood. God, I have peace with you through Christ. So um, knowing that he always is faithful to, re- to, to forgive those who repent of their sins, you can now move on, amen? The Gibeonites failed. Joshua failed. He's 82 by this time. You know, we turn the pages of Scripture and we think that it's just the next day. But remember, a couple weeks ago he was 80. Now he's about 82. <laughs> Sometimes we turn the page, it's months or even years have passed. You, you conf- Lord, I'm weak. I have no resources. The Gibeonites cry out, we're weak. We have nothing. Come help us. You promised, and there he is. Help has arrived. God is ever faithful to forgive and calls us to unite with his people. Amen? A lot of application in these ancient texts. So moving along, a reminder for us all, the Bible's clear. There is a time for peace, and there is a time for war, for war. But what about gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Pay attention. Verse 10. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Oran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Okay, notice the subject of the verb translated confounded them, or as the ESV has it, threw them into panic. Subject of the verb? Yahweh. God. It's the Lord who is the subject of the verb. Notice, he slew them, he pursued them, and he struck them. You don't have a problem with that, do you? Christian? You want a Jesus reeking of hand cream? It's just a metaphor. I use ham cream. 
<laughs> okay, so the emphasis of verse 10 falls on Yahweh himself winning the battle against these Amorite kings. Now, we go on now and we see two incredible miracles, okay? So we'll look at these. Miracle number one, verse 11. As they fled before Israel, while they were at a descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Remember, the Canaanites worshipped nature deities. They must have thought that, man, Yahweh, or uh, their own gods, rather, uh, had sided with Israel. Hail from heaven. God hails down these stones. This, this reminded me of Job. In Job 38, remember God finally answers Job. And basically his response is, Job, who are you to question me? Remember? Look at what he says after a series of questions. Verse 22, Job 38. Have you entered the storehouses of, of the snow, Job? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? You know about that, Job? I didn't think so. So this is a picture give, given to Job of a huge treasury, if you will, of stored up hailstones for a day just like this. Now, most believers, unfortunately, in American evangelicalism have lost any concept of the Lord fighting for them, and they have adopted an image of a soft, effeminate, sentimental God. So as he's described here, he's a stranger to most believers today. Fair enough to say? Yes. Think about Exodus. After God destroyed Egypt and drowned the pursuing armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea, Moses and the people sang a song to the Lord that characterizes him, that characterizes the Lord God Almighty. Okay, and it's not kumbaya. It's not shine Jesus shine. Look at it, Exodus 15. They praise him for being a warrior. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Amen? Any questions? Contemporary American evangelical? The God of the Bible, who is the only God, is a warrior, especially when he protects his people. Miracle one, hailstones. Notice now miracle two. They marched all night. They know they have to battle all day. So Joshua needs more daylight. Verse 12. 
Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ejelon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Now, I've read all kinds of literature over the years here that has tried to comprehend exactly um, what took place here. I mean, did the earth stop rotating for a time? We read that the sun stood still. Look, I do not doubt for a second that Almighty God can stop the earth's rotation and provide some sort of artificial gravity. Does anyone else, anybody in here have a problem with that? Of course not. Because the so-called laws of nature are God's means by which he has chosen to run his universe, and he's never restricted by those laws. Ever. Unbelievers hate the supernatural. They try to reason it away. Don't do that. You're a Christian. Don't you dare do that. Amen? Well, I work in science. Big deal. (laughs) So what? God established the laws. He's not restricted by them. If he caused the earth to stop rotating for a spell, he caused it to stop rotating for a spell. He can make it go backwards if he wants. Now, some view this as merely um, the language of observation, that is poetic language, in that it seemed to Joshua and his men that the day was extended, for they were able to do in one day what normally would take two. That's another view. And yet another view, there's just too many to cover, but another view is that the sunlight... Um, simply lingered, perhaps through some um, atmospheric um, refraction. What Joshua is referring to here is a cosmic sign of some sort that was visible, extending daylight across the land long enough for this battle. So at the end of the day, and it was a very long day, it was clear to all the watching Canaanites that Yahweh is on Israel's side. Verse 14. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like it before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought. The Lord fought for Israel. Now, the book of Jasher is a secular book that's not book of the Bible, but book of Jasher is a secular book that's mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned here. It's also mentioned in, in 1 Samuel. In all the bo- although the book of Jasher is lost to us, Um, Joshua knew of it, and he appealed to it in the sense of, look, if you don't believe me that this happened, it's also written in the book of Jasher. Go check it out. In other words, it was so significant that it was recorded, this event, outside of the Bible. That the sun stood still, whatever that means. 
The unbelieving mind hates God's supernatural intervention by way of miracles. They don't realize that creation is a tool in his hands, my friends. It's a tool. It's his tool. In Matthew 8, Jesus calms the storm, and as frightened as his disciples were in the midst of that storm, thinking they were going to die, they were more frightened when Jesus stood up and said, peace, be still. What did they respond with? Who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? The one who created it, that's who. The one who spoke it into existence. He's never governed by the laws he's established for it. God's not bound by his creation, amen? He is outside of it, superintending it. Two miracles. Once you accept the biblical doctrine of the sovereign, almighty God, and once you accept the biblical doctrine of creation and of his providential rule over creation, the difficulty of believing in the miraculous melts away. Don't be one, Christian, who has trouble with the miraculous. Don't. Who are you to tell me? I'm not telling you. The Bible's telling you. And I'm just passing it on. Can I get some happy responses that says, amen, brother? <laughs> now, speaking of miracles, this is the last miracle in the book of Joshua. And, and as most of you know, yet many do not know, uh, mira miracles um, are not common in biblical history. Again, miracles are not common in biblical history. And when I, uh, let, let me define my terms. When we read of miracles in the Bible, we're talking about the intervention of the power of God that is objective and self-authenticating. Okay, in other words, a miracle is not an event that is subject to interpretation. Okay, and what I mean by that is that we often use this term when God does something remarkable by way of his providence, okay, in our lives. We'll say, oh, that was a miracle. Or um, the salvation, the instant salvation of a sinner, regeneration of a sinner, we'll call that miraculous. Or God um, providing provision for us at just the right time. Or some glorious answer to prayer. Those things are wonderful, but that is not what the Bible means by miracle, signs, or wonders. Amen? Signs, miracles, and wonders like this occurred only three times throughout redemptive history. During the time of Moses and Joshua, representing the law. During the times of Elijah and Elisha, representing the prophets. And during the time of the Christ and his apostles, three times throughout redemptive history that we see signs, miracles, and wonders. And each of those three periods of miraculous events was always a turning point in the history of God's divine revelation of himself. And it seems clear that by the end of the apostolic era, 
even by the time that Paul pens First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, it seems as though signs, miracles, and wonders were no longer a feature in the early church. Now, that, by the way, beloved, is the first and greatest problem with the claim that miracles are occurring in the world today, whether uh, those, that's a statement being made by some charlatan TV preacher or even by a sincere, um, albeit misinformed Christian who believes that the Bible teaches them to expect God's miraculous power like this in the world today. The miracles that some of these preachers are claiming, do not have the objective, self-authenticating character that biblical miracles did. There was no doubt. And that is those types of miracles that occurred during those three phases of redemptive history. So newsflash. If that kind of divine power is leashed again during our time, you will know it because everyone else will know it. Believer and unbeliever alike. It'll be the headline of the daily news. It'll be headlined on CNN. Although the editors may attribute the power to, to aliens or the devil or something, and not to God. But the fact that a supernatural event has occurred, if it does, no one will be able to deny it, and no one will deny it. You take, for example, the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who witnessed them, and especially his most ardent enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they knew without a doubt that he had given sight to the blind, that he healed lepers, that he raised the lame, and he raised the dead. They never once denied that he did those miracles, ever. But they attributed the power by which he did them to the devil. But everyone knew. Signs, miracles, and wonders. So all that being said, here in Joshua 10, this is the final miracle of that first period in redemptive history. Those that you've seen through Moses, now Joshua, this is the last one. Verse 14. <clears throat> there, was no, <clears throat> there was no day like it, excuse me. There was no day like it, that before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Verse 16. Now these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makeda. It was told Joshua saying the five kings had been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. Now, again, while the scriptures define our Lord as a tender shepherd and the savior of his people, he is also our king and warrior who defeats the enemies of his people. Are you with me? Verse 18. Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. 
But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter the cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. It came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished, slaying them with a very large slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities that all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Magadah in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. Yeah, you think? Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. They did so and brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon. The slaughter of the Canaanites was God's judgment upon a people who knew very well who he was. They knew who he was and that they were squatters in his land. 400 years to repent. They were given numerous opportunities. And while the Gibeonites saw the light and repented and called for terms of peace, Adonai Zedek refused. He organized an army to fight against Yahweh, that is his people. And now he's marched to his humiliation and death. Verse 24, when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, come near, put your feet on their necks, the necks of these kings, so they came near and put their feet on their necks. Uh, Placing the foot on the neck of the enemy is a sign of utter humiliation. Total defeat. And this right here, these words... Anticipate the Apostle Paul's words with regard to our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, look at it, verse 25. For he, tender Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. Verse 26. Joshua struck them and put them to death And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua gave a command and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. So here, Joshua reiterates to Israel the blessing cursed principle because cursed is anyone who is hanged upon a tree. And when they did hang someone upon a tree, the law of Moses stated that they must take them down before sunset so that they do not defile the land. Thus, Jesus, who was hanged upon a tree, crucified. The Jews' concern? To get him down before sunset, before their religious holiday. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then notice the place that these kings thought would be their refuge ends up being their tomb. Their tomb. Verse 28. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. 
He left no survivors. Thus he did to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Destroyed. God's judgment, serious and severe. Amen? Very serious. Now, friends, as we wrap up, all that happened here in Joshua 10, again, is a foreshadowing in miniature of the last day. In Revelation chapter 6, when the Lamb of God, the victorious Lamb, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, when he opens up the sixth seal, the kings of the earth, we read, who reject him, who have waged war upon his people, will once again seek refuge in caves and call for the rocks and mountains to fall upon them rather than repenting before him. This foreshadows that. Resolute unrepentance, running and trying to seek refuge in a cave that becomes your tomb. Unless you come to terms of peace, his terms, through his mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who's the king of glory? Psalm 24, the Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. The commander of the Lord's army, the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. So once again, the greater Joshua will place his foot upon the necks of his enemies as he conquers our greatest enemy, which is what? Death and secures for us the blessings of the covenant, the new covenant in his what? In his blood. Life is in the blood. He was drained out. His life was drained out, providing victory for us as he conquered the cave that he was buried in. So whether it's the Israelite here or the Gibeonite, Having peace with God, you overcome the world. You overcome the nations. They've overcome the nations by this peace treaty with Joshua. We have a peace treaty with the greater Joshua. What overcomes the world for us? A sharp sword? Is it the gun you bought last week? No. My brother said it. 1 John 5, our call to worship. For everyone who has been born of God, what? Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, right? The victory that's overcome the world, our faith, the substance of our faith. The greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world, verse 5, except those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They overcome. How does anyone participate in the victory that is Christ, by way of faith alone, in Christ. That's how. Rejoice in that, believer. You get knocked around out there? Do you get knocked around? I think about you all the time when I read some of these texts that you send me about something that your employer has sent you with regard to personal pronouns. Give me a break, man. That you have to deal with that type of thing. And I do pray for you you have to put up with. So we have faith in this victorious, conquering king who is warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he a warrior? In case you're an unbeliever, 
because he came to die. And as he was nailed to that Roman gibbet, nailed, God the Father poured out his, he unleashed his wrath upon his son. Christ, the perfect sinless sacrifice, was providing, was providing propitiation, which means satisfaction. God's wrath was fully satisfied as he poured out his wrath on his son on that day. Christ died, descended into Hades, which means he truly died. That's what that means. He was buried in a cave, in a tomb. He conquered sin, he conquered death by raising the third day. All who are in him by faith also have conquered, are conquering, and will ultimately conquer. For when you die, you will be in his presence forever. And only if you're in him. Only. So if that's you, repent. Change how you think about yourself. Change how you think about God. Turn from your rebellion. Turn to him by faith. And you shall be saved. So Christian, let me ask you, what are you facing? What are you perhaps fearing The good news for us is that through faith in Jesus Christ, God regards you as though you've lived a perfect, sinless life. That's how he sees you, because you're in Christ, his son. In this, we rejoice in his victory. So let this, friends, let this blessed assurance control. Let this steal your soul. This truth solidified. Christ has overcome the world. Fear not what the nations might do. This coalition of five kings, their bones are rotted in a cave, having hung on a tree for a day. They thought they were mighty. They thought they were intimidating. But the Lord of hosts destroyed them. And he'll destroy all your enemies for his name's sake and for our good. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Amen, little sister. We thank you again, Lord, um, for this narrative, for your mighty word, mighty promises throughout, the gory details, which pale in comparison to the gore of the cross that your son bore in our place, took upon himself to set us free, a victory on our behalf. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.